Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this late Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a North Georgia woman and COVID-19 survivor shares how the virus affected her family, community, and what she's doing to help others who work in poultry plants. There was not even enough PPE in the poultry plants. That was the first thing my mother, I remember her complaining and saying that she was so mad that they were expected to be able to work with one um, disposable mask for the entire week. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this early in-person voting began today throughout Georgia for the November general election. For the state's largest counties, they've hired more poll workers and held in-person training sessions in order to avoid some of the snags that led to long lines in the June primary. Now, WABE's Emil Moffitt was up early today at the state's largest voting location, State Farm Arena in downtown Atlanta. Turnout was really heavy uh, in Fulton County this morning, especially here at State Farm Arena. There were lines outside of the building before the doors officially opened to voters at 8 o'clock this morning. Now, once doors were opened, a few voters went through the lines and did the check-in process, and then it was discovered that there was an issue with some of the voter cards and the poll pads. Uh, The poll pads had to be reset Uh, And according to Richard Barron, who is the elections director here in Fulton County, they had to reset all 60 poll pads and re-download the voter database. And once that was done, lines started moving quickly. They had about 45 minutes of a delay where the lines really weren't moving, and we did sense some frustration from voters at that point. But once they got the lines moving, once the technical issue was fixed, then lines started moving quickly, and by 9.30, 10 o'clock, Uh, we started seeing the lines dwindle down to just a handful of voters. So with 300 voting machines here, they are able uh, to move people in and out quickly. Uh, The voters we talked to, once they got the technical snag figured out, were very happy with the process. They said it was quick and easy to get through. Um, And they enjoyed the experience of voting here at State Farm Arena. And one interesting note, Lloyd Pierce, who's the head coach of the Hawks, is actually uh, working, manning one of the lines, uh, greeting people and uh, ushering them through as they get ready to vote here at State Farm Arena. So the Hawks have really uh, stepped up to the plate here to uh, borrow a sports metaphor, mixing sports metaphors. They've stepped up to the plate um, to allow uh, Fulton County voters to vote here early and to allow Um, a lot of their staff to take part uh, in this process of early voting. WABE's Emil Moffitt reporting from State Farm Arena in downtown Atlanta. The arena is transformed into an early in-person voting location for Fulton County. Now, there are many more early voting sites throughout the Atlanta region beyond Fulton County. They'll be open most days between now and October 30th. 
Voters can cast their ballots at any site as long as it's in the county in which they're registered. Meanwhile, in related election news, former second lady of the United States, Jill Biden, was in Georgia today. She visited Atlanta and Columbus to encourage early voting and to campaign for her husband, of course, former vice president and Democratic nominee Joe Biden. And coming to Georgia tomorrow, Ivanka Trump, President Trump's daughter, will reportedly join Senator David Perdue and local supporters up north in Ackworth, Georgia. Now, according to a release, quote, Ivanka Trump will share President Donald J. Trump's Make America Great Again agenda with Georgians. And as election season continues, COVID-19 cases in the U.S. are reportedly increasing. More than half of the U.S. states are seeing an increase in cases, according to the Johns Hopkins COVID-19 tracker. Cases, however, are remaining steady here in Georgia. Typically, the Georgia Department of Public Health provides new numbers each afternoon. So at the time of this broadcast, 331,409 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in the state. So in total, 29,635 have been hospitalized. And of those, 5,511 were ICU admissions. Now also in Georgia, a total of 7,416 deaths have been recorded since March. And as always, this comes from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now on to this. Ryan hands off to Gurley. It's Todd Gurley. Nobody's going to get him. He's going to have a Falcons touchdown. Well, that touchdown run by Todd Gurley was one of the highlights for the Atlanta Falcons this past Sunday, but the end result was the same as in the previous four games. After the loss, a few hours later, Head coach Dan Quinn and longtime general manager Thomas Dimitrov were dismissed, or as they say, fired. Quinn's tenure will be remembered for a Super Bowl letdown when the Falcons lost a 28-3 lead to the Patriots. From Falcons owner Arthur Blank, quote, Decisions like these are very difficult, but the previous two seasons and start to this one have been especially hard for me because of the deep love, admiration, and respect I and my family have for Dan, Thomas, and their families. Blank went on to say, but as everyone knows, this is a results business and I owe it to our fans to put the best product we can on the field. Close quote. Now, for the time being, Falcons named current defensive coordinator Raheem Morris as interim head coach. And finally, thoughts and remembrances of Bishop Dr. Barbara Lewis King are coming in. She was the founder of the Hillside International Truth Center. Bishop King died. She was 90 years old. Barbara King began the world-renowned center in 1971 as a prayer group in her southwest Atlanta home. Today, the International Truth Center has thousands of members globally. Bishop King passed away in her home last night, surrounded by family. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms called King, quote, A spiritual beacon throughout the world. I join her family, friends, and all who had the privilege of her stewardship in grieving her passing. During a time when our social... Virtue is being tested. We will lean on Dr. Barber's legacy of peace, humanity, and love. A celebration of life services for Bishop Barber King is currently being planned. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Our next guest started preaching when he was four years old. As I say often on this program, that's the word on the curb. Al Sharpton became an ordained Pentecostal minister at the age of 10. I'm going to fact check that in just a moment. 
But from that time to now, he's been a community leader, politician, TV and radio host, and author and founder of the National Action Network. And his work continues as a civil rights activist. All of this is detailed in a new book that focuses on real-time events coupled with his life's work. It's titled Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads. And the Reverend Al Sharpton joins me now on the program. Reverend Sharpton, good to talk to you again. Thanks for taking the time. Good to talk to you again, Rose. Let's begin here, because I want to know how vivid is that first sermon that you gave at Washington Temple Church of God in Christ in Brooklyn? How old were you? I was four. I was going to be five that October. Uh, it was October. I'm sorry. It was it was uh, July 9th, uh, 1959. I preached from St. John's 14th chapter. First verse, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. And uh, I, you know, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Mm-hmm. I was baptized when I was three. And I used to go home and preach to my sister's dolls. So when the junior usher board was having the anniversary, uh, they asked all of us what we wanted to do. I said I wanted to preach, and the bishop let me preach. And I started preaching, and I started doing youth services. And by the time I was seven, I was on the circuit as the Wonder Boy preacher. (laughs) So you were preaching to your sister's dolls. John Lewis, the late John Lewis, was preaching to chickens. Y'all had a pretty captive audience, I take it. And it was our best audience. They didn't get a lot in the collection, but they never complained. Let me ask you this, Reverend Sharpton. You felt the calling to preach. You felt, as they call it, you felt the word, the calling to preach the word at a very young age. Yeah, I did. And, uh, you know, I I think one of the things that people uh, have to deal with, you know, Mark Twain said something I always quote, that the two most important moments in life is the moment you're born and the moment you find out why you were born. Mm. I found out mine early, never uh, really strayed away from it. Uh, And then I found at age 12, my ministry was social justice. Didn't want to pastor a big cathedral, historic church. I wanted to be out there helping to organize around social justice issues, which is ministry to me. And I preach in the church, different church every week. But ministry to me is what you do, not what you are. And you have been preaching and you've also been given a lot of eulogies. And I want to go back before we get into Rise Up. I want to go back a few months to the eulogy speech at George Floyd's funeral in Houston uh, back on June 9th. And something that you did before you got into the eulogy and you asked the mother of Trayvon Martin, the mother of Eric Garner, the sister of Botham Jean, the family of Pamela Turner, the father of Michael Brown, the father of Ahmaud Arbery. You asked all of them to stand. They were there in support for George Floyd's family. This moment of having, and we all know what these families share in common, tragedy, and as you also say, you know, senseless tragedy for some would say. Why was that moment so important for you when you reflect on <clears throat> it now? I, w- I felt it was important uh, on several levels. One, I felt it was important to have the Floyd family know they had the support of people that uh, went through the same pain they did. When you lose a loved one senselessly and by law enforcement, it puts you out there in a zone where you feel all by yourself. And I wanted them to have the knowledge and the comfort of people that was in that zone with them were there, took time in a pandemic to come all the way to Houston to be there. And then I wanted the nation, since I knew we were live on television all over the world, 
to see this wasn't an isolated incident. I wanted them to see the victims graphically uh, that had suffered the same plight to drive home. We need to do something about it. This didn't just happen to George. It happened to all these people, which is why even several months after that, when we had the huge march on Washington, August 28th, mm -hmm. I brought all of the families in. We got them all in. Some of them, we got uh, Tyler Perry and, and uh, Robert Smith to get private planes because the speech in 63 was I have a dream. This, the whole thing in 2020 was to let them stand there in the shadows of Lincoln and say, this is what happened to the dream. Mm -hmm. Trayvon's mother, all, Eric Garner's mother, all the way to George Floyd because it speaks for itself. And I think that if anything, we have a responsibility to keep those issues out front until we legislate real change around policing. In fact, you write, I'm gonna quote you here, we are not fighting some disconnected incidents, we are fighting an institutional systemic problem that has been allowed to permeate since we were brought to these shores and we are fighting wickedness in high places, close quote, and actually, Wickedness is also the introduction title in the book. Uh, Reverend Sharpton, when you talk about fighting wickedness in high places, dissect it for our, for our listeners further. Are you referring to President Donald Trump and his administration and other high places as wicked? I'm, I'm talking about a system that would say it is uh, excusable to go into a woman's house and... Uh, break in with the so-called no-knock law and kill her and say self-defense cause her boyfriend with a legal weapon shot back thinking they were uh, being robbed mm -hmm. and then not present all that evidence to a grand jury. That's wicked. And that's high places that covers that wickedness. It is personified by Donald Trump's administration, but it didn't start there, won't end there. But he is the uh, the the present personification of that embraces it doesn't challenge it and to defeat him is to do a major mark against it but uh when i talk about weakness it's a spirit of feeling you have the right to judge people based on their skin color based on their gender based on their sexual orientation uh in my book i talk about not only black rights clearly the uh core of the book is that mm -hmm. but i talk about women's rights i talk about LGBTQ rights, I talk about climate change, because unless we have an intersectional movement, Rose, we will not change this system. Mm -hmm. We cannot continue to just get in our own silos alone. We must find a common ground to fight those that fight all of us. Otherwise, they will play us against each other and remain in power. And as I mentioned, Reverend, coming into this segment, this book is in the moment. You began writing this book not that long ago, just as the coronavirus was set to start spreading. What compelled you to sit down and put all this to paper? Because I felt, Rose, we have been reduced too much in politics in this country to personality politics. And I wanted people to understand it's not about whether Joe Biden turns you on or, or Donald Trump turns you off. We are talking about what direction the country's going in. This is not about just an election, it's about a direction. And for the last half century, from the 60s on, where we had the civil rights movement, voter rights movement, women's rights movement, LGBTQ rights movement, we started moving the country in incremental steps toward a more inclusive, fair, just society, people's rights protected. Now we're being pulled another way where Donald Trump and those he represents 
are pulling it back toward white male rich. Don't worry about everybody health health care. Suspend voting rights by putting up impediments. We need to be dealing with what direction. Mm -hmm. And I've spent my life fighting to keep this direction going the way the 60s had started it when I was just a kid. And I'm saying rise up. Don't just complain. Don't just bark and curse at the television. Rise up and get active. I even give means that people can be active mm -hmm. in the last chapter of the book. Everybody can't lead a march. Everybody's not going to rally. But I gave everybody ways they can do something. Well, let's focus a little bit on you, because in the book you talk about a huge influence, and that is from Shirley Chisholm or Miss Mrs. C, as you often refer to her in the book. Her influence on you from the day you met her, Reverend Sharpton, when you reflect Shirley on Shirley Chisholm was an assemblywoman in Brooklyn, and she ran for Congress. And my bishop sent us because uh, James Farmer ran against her. A lot of people don't know that uh, James Farmer, who was the head of CORE, mm -hmm. was a Republican running on Nixon's ticket against Shirley Chisholm. And so we was all out there because James Farmer, civil rights leader. And uh, uh, Shirley Chisholm uh, knew me as a boy preacher by then. I was uh, a little, uh, just about uh, uh, in my early teens, yeah. mid, mid to early, te uh, uh, early teens, around 68. And uh, she said after the race, she says, you should be on my side. And she kind of took me in. And I learned from her. She was very strict. She had been an educator. So uh, my, my former name was Alfred. The James mm -hmm. Brown lady got me to say just Al. Uh, and she would say, Alfred, sit up straight in the car. I'd sit in the car next to her. She'd sit in the back. She'd correct my grandma. <laughs> I, read, I chuckled when I read that. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. She was a stickler for that. You used that word wrong. You pronounced that wrong. And uh, she faced huge misogyny and sexism in the... Uh, in the black political world. Mm -hmm. And I write about that in the book. I'll mm -hmm. never forget in 1972, uh, I was the youngest uh, member of the platform committee at the National Black Political Convention in Gary, Indiana, historic convention. She ran for president that year. They didn't even invite her. Mm -hmm. And I was one of her youth directors. So that's why this gave me this sense of, wait a minute, we've got to deal with contradictions in our own community as we deal with the contradictions in broader society. Same with LGBTQ. My sister was gay all my life. And she talked about, I remember she challenged me when I started in civil rights. I, like I said, I joined the movement. I was 12 in Brooklyn. And about 13, I was Jesse Jackson, and Reverend William Jones, youth director in, in Brooklyn. And I remember my sister said to me, so let me get this right, that this whole thing about you don't deal with the gay issue, because I'm like 13. She said, so you want to fight for my civil rights as a black, but not as a gay. Mm. And I couldn't answer that. Yeah. She said, I'm black and I'm woman and I'm gay all at the same time. And I think that if we don't deal with these contradictions, we only weaken our movement. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by the Reverend Al Sharpton, and we're talking about his new book, Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads and some other current events. You know, also, Reverend, in Rise Up, you address black unemployment. And while that rate had been declining since President Obama's terms, and, and even throughout the Trump's presidency, but we know how COVID-19 has greatly affected America's black and brown workforce. What concerns you when we get through whatever that's going to be and get to the other side of this pandemic in terms of the quality of life for so many black Americans, 
brown Americans, middle class and low wage earners. What concerns you about what's going to happen post COVID-19? What concerns me is that we are losing so many small businesses, which employ over 40 percent of our community. Those many of those businesses are not coming back. So what happens to those jobs? Uh, uh, many of our municipal and city budgets have been cut immeasurably. So what happens to those jobs that are the essential workers in those cities are laid off? And unless there is a real Marshall plan, an investment plan mm -hmm. to really uh, put funds into those cities and funds in those areas to provide jobs and necessary things like infrastructure development and all, this won't happen uh, uh, on its own. That is why as much as I would love to see Donald Trump defeated and uh, Biden and, and uh, Senator Harris take office, I've already told Biden, I will be at your door the next morning holding you accountable and pounding on the door to say, we need Marshall plans. We need to deal with criminal justice. We can't act like uh, it is just about winning an election and then going home and saying, okay, y'all do it. We have got to stay on this and we've learned from the past that you can elect people, but you've got to hold them accountable. Otherwise you will build yourself up for a nice inaugural ball and then find out that nothing has changed to the degree it should. Has that happened too much with the support from the black voters, whether it was Republican or, or Democrat that won the White House, that the community hasn't held folks accountable? And that includes President Obama. I think it has helped, uh, happened too often. And I think that uh, holding them accountable to the degree that they're resistant, if they are very resistant, we need to be very public and, and March, do whatever. If they are not, we can do it with uh, challenging them face to face. There were times that uh, President Obama and I disagreed, though I was certainly very publicly supportive of him. But there were times we'd get in meetings and I will say he had no problem telling me, Al, I disagree with that. And we go back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I think that's healthy. But I think that none of us ought to be anyone's acolytes. We ought to be for what we stand for and hold people to that. Many times I would say to President Obama, when Trayvon happened and other things, we need to do this, that, and the other. And he would say, okay, y'all go out there and set the climate. I agree with it, but I need the climate set for that to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, there are those that are, Martin Luther King said, there, there are those that are thermometer leaders and there are those that are thermostat leaders. Ther thermometer leaders judge the temperature in the room, walk in the room 60 degrees. Thermostat leaders walk in the room and turn the heat up in the room. Mm -hmm. Say, oh, it's too cold, let's put it up to 75. And uh, I come out of the thermostat leadership. I come out of turning the heat up until people in the room sweat till we get the change we want. You are like in the bridge between the civil rights movements of the early on and then this new wave. So you're that bridge. But what mm -hmm. concerns you or are you encouraged with this new wave of young activism and, and, and the civil rights leaders and human rights leaders. Are you encouraged or do you have some concerns about this next wave of leaders? I'm encouraged. I'm glad to see the uh, uh, energy. I'm glad to see the commitment. Uh, but it also reminds me, and I tell them all the time, that uh, study your history. Uh, it's like you and I were talking offline about we tell people in the uh, music world, study your history. Mm -hmm. This ain't the first time young people got involved. If you look at the 60s, you had Dr. King, 
and SCLC, you had the NACP, you had the Urban League, you had structured organizations, but you had the Freedom Riders who were students, who were organic. Mm -hmm. You had those that sat in the lunch counties, organic. You had uh, Freedom's uh, Summer 64 organic students, Dr. King and ACP and them didn't start them. So this is not the first time we've seen that. The difference is those students and organic movements of those times, they operated differently than Dr. King and others, but they studied and they wanted laws change and they had end goals in mind. And what I try to tell a lot of young people, including those in National Action Network, what is the goal? We want to have a rally. We want to do so and so. Fine. Toward what? Which is why when we had the big march in Washington, August 28th, Martin Luther King III and I convened, we said we want to pass the George Floyd Policing and Justice Act, which has already passed the House of Representatives, but not been introduced in the Senate. And we want to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Unless you have legislation attached to your demonstration, you are going to have frustration. There's another issue I want to get to before we end our conversation, because it's already out there that they call it an eviction tsunami is looming. Housing affordability, greater pockets of poverty will exist. I don't need to tell you, a New York guy, about housing affordability issues. Many see this is going to be a, a, a terrible crisis when we get to the other side of this COVID-19. What solutions terrible and resources crisis. out there? Yeah. Terrible crisis. And, and if we don't prepare now, homelessness is going to increase. And people rose that are not accustomed to being homeless. You're not talking about terminally homeless people that mm -hmm. have always had it. You know, people that have comfortable homes and, and, and comfortable bearings for their family that are going to find themselves evicted because they can't pay the rent and catch up on the rent they couldn't pay because of a pandemic they had nothing to do with causing. And I think unless there is a real bailout and, and right away, there's something wicked, going back to the beginning of this conversation, mm -hmm. about a Senate that can rush to confirm a right wing on the Supreme Court, but can't rush to have a COVID relief package approved and send money down the drain. Otherwise, we're going to see evictions in a way we've never seen them before with the type of stable families that have never experienced that before. And Reverend Sharpton, who should read Rise Up? I think everybody. I think those that want to be activists should read it. Those that want to decide which side they should be on in the uh, election. I think conservatives that disagree with me should at least find out what they disagree with. Everybody should read uh, Rise Up, but particularly those of us that don't feel there is any hope. We need to read it so we could find out that you should stop looking to others and start looking in the mirror on what you're doing and rise up and do your part. You may not do what I do, but you can do something if it's only in your household. Early on in the book, you let the reader know where you come from and how you got there. You write, quote, in my life, I've run with both the dreamers and the schemers. So through your lens, Reverend Sharpton, what are some of the misconceptions you think people have about you? I think people uh, have the misconception that uh, I'm doing this for publicity, or I'm doing this because I make some hidden money doing it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been doing this all my life. You know, at four years old, when I started preaching, 12 years old, when I joined civil rights, you know, I didn't have a career goal that, oh, if I do this one day, I'll have a show on MSNBC, and one day I'll have access to the black president of the White House. When I was 12 years old, there was no MSNBC or no other cable station. 
and there was no dream of a black president. I did then what I do now. And uh, there's not a whole lot of money in this. When, when I uh, got to the point where James Brown had embraced me as a son and Michael Jackson, I was cool. I could have got out of this a long time ago uh, if I wanted to make money. When I got a contract, I've been nine years hosting the show on MSNBC, do radio every day. I don't have to lead marches like I've done this year. Mm -hmm. I do this because I believe it. But I accept the misconceptions because I don't know anybody that was in my field, including Dr. King, that they didn't say all of those things about. Goes with the territory. What I want people to do is, whatever you think Al Sharpton, fine. I'll stipulate that. But what do you think about yourself? What are you doing? I'm going to do me. I don't need anybody's approval. I want to know what you're going to do. And finally, if you choose to define it, what is your legacy or how do you sum up your life's work on this earth? I want uh, my legacy to be that in the early part of the 21st century, as we still face civil and human rights struggles, that I was part of the front line of those that would not let the issues go. And I continued a tradition of resistance, of fighting for human and civil rights based in the black church, but spread to people way beyond the church. And I kept that banner going. I was part of those on the front line of that. And that uh, I did my uh, in my time what I could to keep that going. It didn't start with me, it won't end with me but I kept it going in my era to the degree that I could. And somewhere in the footnotes, they say, every once in a while, I could talk to Rose Scott. <laughs> That's a great way to end this conversation. The Reverend Al Sharpton, the book is called Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads. Reverend Sharpton, thank you for taking time. As always, I appreciate it. Stay safe up thank there you. in Brooklyn. Thank you, I appreciate you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The number keeps climbing. Right now, it's more than 200,000. That's the number of deaths in the U.S. due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And COVID-19 is now the third leading cause of death right now in this moment that we're all in. And leading public health officials say the numbers we have now are likely an undercount. So it may be hard to grasp this many lives lost in our nation. But there are some dedicated to ensuring that these lives are honored. And that's why recently a group of COVID-19 survivors and advocates gathered for a socially distanced day of remembrance in Washington, D.C. And Grammy Award winning singer and former U.S. Ambassador for Health, Dionne Warwick, was a part of it. It's been over eight months of this devastating pandemic, and we have not yet had this moment. So... Today we come together to grieve our losses because we feel every single one of them. Now, I may not have known your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your husband, your wife, but I do mourn with you. 
Now, this event was called the National COVID-19 Remembrance Day, and it was organized by a nonpartisan group, COVID Survivors for Change. Here in Georgia, Maria del Rosario Palacios was there, and she joins me now to share her experience. Maria, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Let's begin here. These last eight months, how do you put this into your own words? What's your reflection? Well, things are definitely not the same. The easiest way I can think about it, I guess, is there has been an unveiling of how weak our infrastructure has been with being able to provide for for one, essential workers. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Um, you know, someone who used to work in a poultry plant in Gainesville, I always think of uh, my days in uh, a manufacturing uh, plant. Mm-hmm. And then two, our healthcare system, um, just how fragile it is and how complicated um, it becomes when you have to respond to a pandemic, but you're still catching up from just regular healthcare needs. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing to see how many gaps we have. Can you tell me a little bit about your family? In your yeah. household. Yes. Um, so I'm very close to a lot of people in my family. I, I'm a single parent. Um, I have three kids. Um, my oldest is eight and I have twin five-year-olds. Usually when I say that, people give me a very interesting look. Like they're shocked and also worried and concerned for me. Uh, twins are definitely fun. Um, but I, I also provide financially for... Um, for my sister in Mexico, mm-hmm. who I've been separated from for the last 10, 11 years because of her immigration status. She grew up with me and she has an older daughter that was born in the US who I used to take care of. And I also provide financially for my mother. Um, I have on and off for a long time, but I have especially had to help her out. My mother's in her mid fifties, mm. uh, very, healthy person pre-COVID. She was, I think, healthier than I was uh, because she's always taking good care of herself. She's always had a a good exercise and good work-life balance. And uh, she's always, you know, been someone who cares a lot about nutrition. Mm. And so my my mother uh, takes care of um, my youngest brother who's adopted. um, And he's actually my cousin by birth. And her whole life has has changed. Um, And so I have two families on top Mm -hmm. of mine, uh, two single single women uh, who run households with young children. And um, and it's hit us hard, to be very honest. All of us um, in Mexico and here Mm -hmm. have uh, been exposed and know what COVID uh, feels like. And it's been scary every single time that someone in their family has, has gotten sick. Maria, can you share with our audience when you were told that you had contracted the virus? Yes. Um, so when we had quarantine, I, you know, as, as soon as our country went into quarantine and, you know, we started putting in measures to be socially distanced, I immediately took that very, very seriously. Um, having worked with food safety and in a microbiology lab at um, at Smithfield when I was in food manufacturing, 
um, I, I just knew how important it was to reduce the spread of, you know, mm-hmm. something like this virus. And so I, I went two months without visiting my mother because my mother is an essential worker. She hasn't been able to work from home. Um, she works in poultry like she has for 20 years. And I went two months without seeing her. Um, but she, she'd been telling me that her coworkers were sick. She'd been telling me how afraid she was because people had gone back to work visibly sick um, still after just taking a short time off. And um, I was concerned about her. So in mid, mid-May, um, I went to visit her after two months of not seeing her. And immediately I realized that she was sick and I realized that I was getting sick. Um, I started feeling, you know, um, a lot of like the COVID things, uh, you know, a loss of uh, taste. Mm-hmm. Um, among, you know, other things. And, um, and, and yeah, and so uh, my mother was really sick with a fever and I actually was caring for her and um, had her take a test first before realizing that both of us um, had COVID. And so um, it was June 2nd when we, when we found that out and things since just haven't been the same. The voice you hear is Maria del Rosario Palacios, and we're talking about her personal experiences being diagnosed with COVID-19, she's now a survivor, and also her mother, and how all of this led to Maria founding her own organization. Maria, were there safety measures in place for workers? Was there PPE available? No, um, this has been something that learning from organizations like the Latino Community Fund who have been um, doing a lot of research and monitoring the even availability of supplies in Gainesville and Hall County. Gainesville, you know, is, is 40 per, 42% um, Hispanic, uh, Latinx, and uh, we, you know, we are in the food manufacturing spaces that are prevalent there, right? We are called the chicken capital of the world. Mm-hmm. So um, there was not even enough PPE in the poultry plants. That was the first thing my mother, I remember her complaining and saying that she was so mad that they were expected to be able to work with one um, disposable mask for the entire week. And um, the plants are also very... One mask for the week? Yes. One mask, she said it would be given to them on Monday. And she said that at the beginning of the pandemic, that that wasn't even something that was available to them. It became available in May. So they went for a month and a half without even being provided um, any kind of mask. She said that they had to bring in their own. And um, it's also an industry that people are used to working elbow to elbow because the production spaces are wide open rooms and you um, with, you know, some, some equipment, but really it's folks doing things by hand, elbow to elbow. And she said that they were, they were put a feet and a half apart, that they weren't even given the six feet um, requirement or suggestions. Maria, did you know or have any co-workers, friends, relatives who succumbed to the virus? That's been one of the most challenging things here has been um, that, so, you know, after I, after I, I graduated from college, I've worked in the nonprofit sector and I have the privilege of being able to work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that, um, 
my coworkers are not impacted the same way I am. Um, you know, I, I work in organizations, I work in an organization right now that is, you know, majority people um, who, who are white, non, you know, people are, who are not people of color. Mm-hmm. And I used to work in majority people of color spaces. And I just know the difference right now of what's happening between, you know, how likely folks are to have been impacted. Like my whole world has been turned upside down. My, my babysitter, who I've relied on for eight years, um, had COVID very, very harshly. She was in the hospital for a while. Her whole family had it. Um, her and her, her nephew, um, her adult nephew were both in the hospital for a long time. And um, there's not anyone, there's not anyone in Gainesville who I know um, who hasn't had, um, who hasn't been exposed, sick themselves or, or have a close family member that got sick. And this has led you to, to take action. You have founded your own mutual aid organization. Yes. um, A group of, there's there's a core group of, of maybe, well, there's a core group of like 12 of us. Um, But from the beginning, um, you know, there was folks um, in my group, in my group of friends who were doing um, food banks, who were trying to help with getting core testing sites in Gainesville. And as soon as my mother got sick um, and I learned of all the things going on in poultry plants, um, we sprung into action. We sprung into action. Really, at first, I, I went off on a Facebook rant. I didn't expect to get a lot of support from um, my, my folks on there. But people started reaching out asking how they could help. And we knew the first thing that we wanted to do was provide PPE, provide free masks for folks so that they could wear them at work. Um, but um, while we were launching this, um, a close friend of mine, her father passed away and uh, their family works in poultry. And we know how it spread in, in her family and so we immediately set up a, a fund to help with funeral costs. Mm-hmm. And since then, we've, we've helped uh, a lot more families. How's your mother? She's not the same. Um, she was pre-diabetic before COVID. She, she, she suffered a stroke while um, she was very sick with COVID. And it was very scary. Um, she was... She was so afraid. You know, one of the things about COVID is that a, a lot of folks have, have passed in isolation. Um, you know, I, I lost my grandfather, my grandfather to COVID. And um, my boyfriend just lost his, his grandmother who raised him um, two weeks ago to COVID. And part of the saddest thing in, in this is that fear and that reality that folks have been isolated mm-hmm. because we're trying to stop the spread, but you you die in that isolation. And so my mother was very afraid of going to the hospital. Let me let me ask you this. Has your mother received medical care, Maria? She has, she has, but <laughs> she would only allow me to take her to urgent care. Uh, she did not want me to take her to Northeast Georgia and uh, the hospital that we have in Gainesville. She, um, she only let me take her to urgent care. Um, Why? Why? She didn't want to be in isolation. Um, hmm. She didn't want to stay overnight. And um, 
you know, she, she was afraid of, of passing in isolation. Um, and so each time that she, you know, when she suffered a stroke, when she um, was having a lot of complications, breathing, things like that, you know, we, we rushed her to urgent care. We rushed her to see if her doctor or someone from um, the Long Street Clinic where she goes could take care of her. Um, and unfortunately, since she still had, um, she has neurological problems. She takes medication for, um, to help reduce the risk that she has another stroke. Um, she has heart problems. She still has difficulty breathing. Um, she just had an outpatient procedure um, for some issues with her nerves. For even, even her ability to walk hasn't been the same. She's full-blown diabetic. Her blood pressure is high. Um, we have to check her, her vitals uh, a couple times a day at least. Um, and she has better days. She has some good days, some not so good days, right? And, and good is, is different, differently defined than what it used to be. So right now she's dealing with these other medical conditions that were probably exasperated by the virus, but she's over the virus, correct? Correct. Um, we're, we're really happy that she was able to, to finally test uh, negative after, after about a month of, of being sick. Um, she was able to, to test negative. I think three weeks she had um, the symptoms pretty bad. And then after a month, um, she did finally test negative. With the work that your organization is doing, providing small grants, you're also trying to provide assistance for funeral services. You're also trying to provide masks. That's a lot for a startup that just, you know, how are you able to do all this? Who are your partners? Yes, I have, I have amazing folks who are helping out. So we do right now uh, fund four contractors who are helping um, anywhere from 15 to 30 hours a week um, we have a pretty active board. Um, we have nine folks who are serving as um, board members of the organization. And we have a lot of support from folks at the Latino Community Fund who have uh, fundraised really the bulk of the, of the um, work that we've been able to do. Um, we've had donations from, from Fair Fight Mm -hmm. uh, we partnered with them, especially with getting news out about the census. We've taken the opportunity of being able to be so close to our community members and um, hand out kits for them. Um, we've included things in there for, for the census. Um, and we've had a lot of support from the community um, to help fund to, you know, for contractors and, you know, our board members obviously are all volunteers, mm -hmm. um, but they've been amazing at helping show up to a distribution event or helping even with um, getting the organization set up. So it's been great. Maria, as we wrap up, a couple of questions. First of all, to your knowledge as a poultry plant, have the safety measures improved at all? No. I would say that um, that they haven't. You know, the poultry industry has taken a huge hit in being able to have sufficient workers during this time, and that has that has definitely pressured them to 
found ways to fill fill jobs without having the proper processes in place. Maria, how are you taking care of yourself physically, emotionally, and mentally through all of this? Everything that you just said, that you just told our listeners, you just told me, that's a heavy burden. It is. I find my refuge in, in music and in reading. My kids don't understand why. I ask them, um, you know, at least a few times a week if they can let me read for a couple hours. Um, they don't understand why I'm so excited about re- reading or, or just decompressing um, that way. Admittedly, though, I, I, I still didn't read like political things, so I should stop doing that. Um, <laughs> but I, I do, and then music, I think, is, is one of the biggest ways. Just going out for a walk, listening to some music helps. Maria, thank you so much for sharing your story. Best of luck to you and your mom and those five-year-old twins that you have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sure they they are fun, like you said. The twins are fun, so yes, they are. And and an eight year old. So, Maria, thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 